One of my favorite questions to ask someone that I don't know very well, question that I would ask somebody as I'm trying to get to know them is this. Hey, what are the books that have most shaped your life? What books do you read that have sort of shaped your life? Well, imagine that somebody answers that question, and quite frankly, what people say is very revealing. And imagine that someone answers that question this way. The books that shaped my life? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Go, dogs, go. Um, Where the wild things are. And the cat in the hat. You'd be like, what? Or imagine that somebody says, you know the books that have most shaped my life? I, I really don't read anything except um, Stephen King novels. Mm, so that might raise some questions. Or maybe I don't read anything except romance novels. Okay, that's telling. So if we move from secular books, let's move to biblical books. If I were to ask you, what have been the most impactful books of the Bible that you've studied? What would make the list? Or maybe if you've been around College Park for a while, we could ask the question this way. Of the books that we've studied together since I've been here since 2008, which of the books of the Bible, those sermon series have been most impactful? On my list, if you've been around here for a while, would be the book of Colossians, first sermon series that I did. 2008. I would put on that list the book of Romans. I would put on that list the book of Lamentations. Interesting, defining book. And now, I would put on my sort of top five list the book of James. One of the reasons that I love preaching through a book of the Bible is that that series tends to sort of mark the body of Christ. Some of you who've joined our church during the study of James may not mark your date of membership by the month, but you may mark your membership if someone were to say to you, hey, when did you join College Park? You might say, I actually joined during the book of James. I wanna remind you where we were when we began the study of James. It was August of 2020. That seems like seven years ago, doesn't it? Like they're dog years, right? So seven years. The pandemic was in full swing. We had just reopened Sunday morning services, one of the first large churches in the city to regather for in-person worship. The 2020 election was still in front of us. We were waiting for vaccines. We were nervous about a possible second wave. I was trying to help you think through us together what was the difference between a political issue, a cultural issue, or a theological issue. And every week there were controversies, there were conflicts, there were conspiracies, whether it was challenges with COVID guidance, politics, racial reconciliation and justice, issue of trust in leaders, even church leaders. That was the environment in which the Lord dropped the book of James for us. And I'm really thankful. You know, those issues, some of them have subsided, others are still in play. 
But it's interesting to think about how the book of James has helped us to understand both where we are, where we were, and how providential this book will be even for our future. Every book of the Bible has a context, and every sermon series has a context as well. I'm thankful not only for the content of the book, but I'm also thankful for the context in which we were studying it. I'll never be able to untether the book of James in my heart from this challenging season that we've all walked through and are still in. In the same way that the book of Colossians is pretty significant for me because it was my first series here at the church, so too James will be significant. If you were to take my preaching Bible from 2008, it just kind of opens to the book of Colossians. And if you were to look at it, you'd find like really dirt marks on the side of the pages for my thumbs and holding the scriptures because I was a little more nervous in 2008 than I am today. So we draw James to a close today and I think it's important for us just to take a moment and step back and thank God for the helpfulness of this book. We've certainly not crossed the finish line. It's not like everything is better still a lot of challenges in front of us, not the least of which is to figure out how to care for spiritually languishing people. But here's the thing. God helped us through the book of James. There's all kinds of things that he taught us. And as we draw this book to a close, I want to do two things today. I want to cover the last two verses and help you understand James's final exhortation and then what I also want to do is to summarize the entire book of James with three particular summary points. So a final exhortation and then three summary points. First here, this final exhortation. I've read the scripture already, but just understand how James ends. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's how he ends. Contrast that with how the Apostle Paul ends the book of Romans. He, he gives all kinds of greetings. Say hi to so-and-so, greet so-and-so, and then he ends this way. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the one and only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ, amen. Wow, that's a way to end. James ends, go find hurting people and rescue them. It's crazy. The Apostle Paul ends with salutations and benedictions and a flourish. James ends his book with another command. At one level, we shouldn't be surprised. New Testament scholar Doug Moo says that James, more than any other book in the Bible, her word has commands in it like none other. So James ends this book with a final exhortation. He essentially says, watch out for each other, care for one another, and if you see a brother or sister who's wandering, go get them and bring them back. And that's his mic drop, he walks off the stage. No benediction, no flourish, 
just be concerned about each other. So let me give you three highlights from this final exhortation. First, there's an orientation toward one another in this text. Notice he says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So James talks about looking out for one another. He calls suffering people to be concerned about one another's spiritual health and perseverance. Do you know why that's important? It's important not just because it's in the Bible, but because there is a natural gravitational force within our 21st Western American culture that prizes individual over the group. And at one level, there's not something inherently sinful about that, but you just need to know that we bring an individual framework to everything as Western Christians. If you were to go to an Eastern culture, you'd find more of a communal context, a shame culture, if you will. Well, in an individual culture, everything relates to what about me? How does this relate to me? And just think about how this sort of affects even our understanding or how we talk about Christianity. We say to people, hey, would you like to invite Jesus to be your personal Savior and Lord? Or perhaps the question that you ask, what did I get out of the sermon today? Or if you're in the process of looking for a new church, sometimes people even say to me, we're church shopping. And at one level, none of those things are inherently wrong. They just, they just reflect and inclination, a bias, if you will, as to see the world through an individual perspective. And so James ends his book by saying, for all the things that we talked about what we're to do individually, James wants us to be reminded that we're supposed to care for one another. What he's saying here is that spiritual growth and persevering to the end is not just about individuals. It's about making it together. As a large church, it's an easier place in the context of our regular gathering to get lost. As a result, we have to do things more intentionally to care for one another. Connections can be more complicated, and as a large church, we have to think through how do we do that. And so we, as staff, try to be pretty strategic in trying to help us to think about one another. But that also means that we collectively, beyond even programs or structures or classes that we offer, we just need to realize that all of us have a mutual responsibility to each other. When you think of the book of James, let me encourage you to think not only about how this book applies to you, but how it applies to the people that you love, the people that you know. Now, throughout the book, I've encouraged you at different times, don't think of anybody else, just think of you. When we're talking about our words, like, don't think of somebody else, and think of yourself, and that's true, but as we end, James wants us to pull back, and he wants us to realize the importance of caring for one another. So the challenge is, is that this book drops into an individualistic culture. Here's the second thing. Remember, James is writing to a group of suffering people, and it's interesting that he ends with this focus on others. 
And I trust that you know why he might need to do that, because when we're suffering, there's a tendency for us to fall back into self-centered survival mode. Do you feel that? It's easy to think that I don't have the emotional or spiritual capacity to deal with other people's issues because I'm barely making it. And at one level, that's entirely understandable. And for a season, it wouldn't even be wrong to think that way or to have that be your posture. But that can't be your posture forever. And it's interesting that James ends his letter to suffering people this way and that he calls them to realize their responsibility to one another. And it might just be that as we end this book that some of us need to be pulled out of the myopia of our misery and to be reminded that we do have a responsibility to one another. James calls us to be spiritually concerned for each other. His final exhortation, secondly, involves a concern about someone wandering from the truth. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, now that word wander, what, what comes to mind immediately? Most of us think of wandering as something that happens unintentionally, sort of pointless. There's not necessarily an intentionality as it relates to wandering. If you had a friend and you called him on the phone and said, hey, what you doing? You're like, well, just wandering around the neighborhood. You're like, dude, what are you doing? Just wandering on purpose, like what? Or if your kids, you, you go to a, a state park and they're like, hey, mom, it's getting dark. Can we go wander in the woods? You're like, no, you cannot. So, so wandering has the idea of, of, a, of a deviation Sometimes we think unintentionally, and in the context here, the idea is a person who probably unbeknownst to them is on a path where they're in danger of being lost because of where their path is going to lead. So what they may not know is not that they're on a path, what they may not know is where their path is going to lead them. They may not know the seriousness of what they're doing. Sometimes people wander without really even knowing that they're wandering. James says, call them back. He says, anyone wanders from the truth. Now immediately when we hear the word truth, we might think propositional truth, like they believe the wrong things. And that would be true at one level, but can I remind you that James is not a book that is just intently focused on propositional truth. James is particularly focused, like no other New Testament book, on the implications of truth. James is interested in lived truth. That's why the, the signature verse in James is, faith without works is dead. So I think what's happening here is the wandering that James has in mind is not merely a wandering in terms of what someone believes, but rather the wandering in terms of what someone does. He has in mind works that don't fit with the gospel. And that's why he talks about here saving a person from a multitude of sins. Don't get me wrong, what we believe really matters. But I think that you would agree with me that most of the problems with the church today do not relate to someone in the church fundamentally rejecting their belief in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. That happens, and that's a problem, but I don't think that's the big problem. 
The big problem in the church is not belief as much as it is, as it is behavior. And most of the ways that people wander from the truth will relate to what they do. So even in the midst of our own present context and culture, there are always ditches. And again, here's the ditch. The one ditch is that you would wander and embrace something that's antithetical in a belief system to the gospel. So for instance, you may have heard about something like social gospel. You're embracing the social gospel. You're replacing the gospel with something else. That's a ditch. It's a real ditch. It needs to be avoided. But there's another ditch. And the other ditch is an intellectual gospel, a gospel that believes in faith alone, through Jesus alone, by grace alone, that believes that on Sunday, but it doesn't work on Monday. And the question that every one of us have to wrestle with is, in those two ditches, which both are bad, where is our tendency, where is your tendency, where is my tendency? The book of Romans dealt with propositional truth, the danger of not understanding that grace alone saves. But James addresses another issue. James is speaking to religious people. He's speaking to people who are steeped in their understanding of what the Bible is all about. And he's concerned that those people would so know everything about who Jesus is, they would so know what faith is, but they wouldn't match it with how they live. So quite frankly, James is concerned about that you would love God, but he's even more concerned that you would love your neighbor. And I think the question that all of us have to wrestle with is, which of those two is a more likely danger? James would say, your behavior is what he's more concerned about. James would want us to watch out for one another, especially in terms of how we live out the gospel by our behavior. James would want us to watch out for one another and how we treat each other, about how we talk about other people, about how quickly we get angry, how we treat people who are easily mistreated, how we might exhibit partiality and how prone we are to selfish ambition. Those are the issues that James is leaning into to a mostly religious group who are suffering and having difficulty. And the thing is, though, is that's hard Here's why. Because I'd rather talk to a brother or sister about their unbiblical views about the Trinity than I would to talk with them about their consistently nasty and rebellious tone online. I'd rather have the first conversation, not the second. It's easier to talk with somebody about the truth that they believe or don't believe than it is to talk with them about how they are living that truth. And yet the whole point of the book of James is the connection between faith and works. Church, you need to know that there is no book in the entire Bible more focused on the connection between belief and behavior than James. No other book. And if at the end of this book you don't feel the weight of that connection, if you don't feel the weight of the connection between faith and works, candidly, I would be pretty nervous for you. Christians aren't perfect people, but there must be a connection between what we believe and what we do, and that is the central message of the entire book of James. If you're listening to this sermon today and you're not yet a Christian, I feel compelled to tell you that a relationship with Jesus is designed to change people. We are 
forgiven of our sins, Christians are, and it means that a new power and a new authority is ruling your life. It means that Christians have a new reason to live and that your life is forever changed. And if you're not a Christian, sadly, what will happen is there are some people who claim to believe that, but they don't live that way. And for some of you, it's the reason why you don't want to become a Christian, because you're like, Christians are hypocrites. And the answer would be, yes, that's true. There are some who are like that, sadly. But here's the thing, but those people probably aren't Christians. Because if they believe one thing and it doesn't work, then they don't really believe it because what they believe is supposed to work. It doesn't work perfectly, but if there's a disconnect between how they live and love other people, how they work out their own righteousness versus what they believe, then there's something wrong. And if you're not yet a Christian, I would urge you to not push aside the claims of Christianity because of the bad behavior of some who call themselves Christians who probably aren't. What James is saying is his behavior matters. Here's the third thing. James says that this concern is serious. He, he, he makes it very clear that there's something significant here that he is saying. In verse 20, he says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So save his soul from death. Wow. What James means is that continued disobedience, continued separation of faith and works would raise the question as to whether or not the person really is a true believer. And a life of wandering into sin would in fact call into question if the person really understands what the gospel means. To save him from death means eternal condemnation. It means standing before the judge, standing before Jesus and having him say to you, you knew me, but you didn't know me. You knew about me, but it didn't work. And what James is arguing here is that brothers and sisters in Christ need to remind one another about that possibility so that that isn't true about them. He says a multitude of sins are covered. This means that the error of his ways has been corrected. That that future sins that would have happened had he gone along on this path or had she continued in this destructive pattern have actually been halted and the sins that were committed are now forgiven because the brother or sister has repented. So it's an amazing statement here that James invites us into God's activity in helping one another to make it across the finish line. And so throughout the book, what he's doing here is he's emphasizing the danger of self-deception. He's warning us about the possibility about being double-minded. And what he's saying here is it takes other people to help us to see the error of our ways, to love us enough to call us back, or at least to raise the question, have you thought through the path that you're on? So James invites us to be involved in each other's lives. So let me ask you two questions in light of that. First, do you see that you have a responsibility to other people around you, especially people who are part of the same body of believers, the same church? This text is a beautiful call to remember our commitment to one another. Not to everyone, of course not. Not every single person, but the people that you know. The people who you love. 
Second question would be this, are you well known enough by other Christians so that they would be able to both sense when you're getting off or would feel the freedom to gently raise a concern about where you're headed? You see, a church can be a place where you can attend to keep people at a distance and no one really knows when you're starting to wander. And if you fully wandered, you might blame the church because people held you at distance and some people might be accountable for that, but so would you because you didn't open the door and let them in. So James says we're to watch out for each other. We're to help each other persevere. And this is how the entire book ends. <laughs> There's no greetings, no benedictions, no nice summaries. After all the imperatives, after all the instruction, James leaves us with one more. He says, take the spiritual lives of one another seriously. And he drops the mic and walks off stage. It's an incredibly sober reminder. It's his final exhortation. Now, if we take a step back for the entire book, let me give you three themes beyond just this final exhortation, what are the things that I would want you to remember about this book? There's so many, but here's the three. Number one, it would be James calls us to remain steadfast. This book started with a clarion call to joyfully persevere through various trials. James wrote to a group of people who were experiencing some kind of hardship and suffering, and he wants them to see beyond the hardship and the difficulty that's in front of them and realize that God has a purpose in this and your persevering isn't plan B. You know it, but I wanna remind you that James says that the plan is for you to joyfully make it through the difficulties that might not change. For some of us, our joy is directly linked to the hope that circumstances are not gonna change. And what James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Which is also why James says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Can I just remind those of you that are in a season of waiting where you look at the situation in front of you and all it feels like you can do is endure and wait and when you're in a situation when all you can do is persevere, you are not on plan B, you are on plan A. Trusting the Lord is the plan. Seeing how everything works out, that's not the plan. That's part of the plan, but the end game is to trust the Lord. The thing that's supposed to be woven through all of the difficult circumstances of our life is not understanding how they all connect together and have everything make sense to you or have everything be in a way that fit with your expectation from the past. But rather, it is that in the midst of, no, of all the circumstances that are happening, you are trusting the Lord regardless of what comes. So come high water or low water, come great moments or bad moments, come long struggles or short struggles, the consistent thread of your life is this. God is good, life is hard, Jesus reigns, God wins in the end of the day. 
And so can I remind you that your waiting is not a waste. Number two, central to the message of James is that we would live out the gospel. There is no other book like this in the New Testament that so emphasizes the implications of the gospel. Implications of the gospel matter, just like implications of marriage matter. You can't separate the two. They're they're linked together. If you find a guy who's been married and he's sleeping around, he's like, what's the big deal? You're like, bro, marriage means you don't do that. He's like, well, I don't agree with that. Then you don't understand marriage. I don't know what to do with that. The implication is linked to the reality, and James says the same thing. Understand the gospel, gospel needs to be lived. Doesn't mean it's lived perfectly, but it has to be linked together. If you don't live out the implications of the gospel, you might not understand the gospel, which is why James says this in 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So throughout the history of God's people, there have always been two threats. Threat number one is worshiping a God other than the one true God. That's a real threat. Or secondly, worshiping the one true God in the temple, but living in a way as if that one true God doesn't really matter. And as you're gonna see in the book of Isaiah, it's that second reality that is most often the problem with the people of Israel. They have foreign God problems for sure, but the problem throughout the history of Israel is that they keep coming to temple worship and they keep not loving people in their community. They keep saying things and bringing offerings so much so that the prophet Isaiah says that God says to them, stop your worship, I'm tired of it. If you can't love people, stop singing to me. James is a New Testament prophet like Isaiah, like Ezekiel, like Jeremiah. You see, church, you can abandon the gospel by denying the gospel, and you can deny the gospel Rather, you can abandon the gospel by denying the gospel, and you can abandon the gospel by defaming the gospel. James would call us to never forget that living out the gospel really matters. So on Sundays, we gather to remind ourselves what the gospel is, not just so that we can feel better about ourselves, know that our sins are forgiven, but so that we can be a grace-receiving people, so that we can be a grace-giving people. Finally, James applies this very practically in how we love each other. Very poignant, pointed words. James reminded us over and over of what this could look like, negatively or positively. Negatively, that we can be sinful with our words, we can refuse to listen to one another, we can become quick to get angry. James put it this way in James 1.19, know this, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, given the way that people are in our society right now, even the way I am a little bit, I think this should be a bumper sticker. Without our church's name on it. I get a little nervous with you putting that on your car with our name. I'm just saying, but you know what I mean, okay? That's, that's a little too close to the chest. 
Chapter two warns us about the sin of partiality, treating people differently because of what they can give us or because of what treating them differently would mean and how other people would treat us. James warned us that our words could be destructive in chapter three, that our tongue can be like a fire and that fire is set on, it, 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 that the tongue can be set on fire by hell itself. In, in chapter four, we, we learned that we can be selfish and jealous and quarrelsome and underneath it is what we want. James said, what causes quarrels? What causes fights? You ever wonder, why are, why are we fighting? Here's why. Because your passions are at war within you. You desire and you don't have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. So the point is, why is this, why are we arguing? It's because we want things and our passions are colliding against each other. James diagnoses the human condition. That was true from the very beginning of time. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Israelites, Judah and Israel, Name a time period, you'll find James 4 at play. So the reality is, is the world and culture in which we live isn't different than any other time in human history. And yet here we have this wonderful and helpful book. And so what we do now, church, is we bid farewell to a book that has served us so well helped us through a global pandemic, controversies, confusions, suspicions, divisions. James drops in the midst of one of the most challenging seasons I've ever seen in my lifetime. James has helped us to remain steadfast. He's brought conviction where we've needed it and we still need more. And what I love about this book is it has renewed our commitment to never, ever, 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 ever give up. Not in our own strength, but asking God to make us a steadfast people. So I thank God for the book of James, his clarity, his poignancy, his punchiness. It's a book I'll never forget about the way that a grace-receiving people are to be a grace-giving people as we learn what it means to be steadfastly joyful as we follow Jesus to the finish line. Let's pray together. Father, we need this book to go with us for years to come and so we pray that you would do that and take the truths that we have learned, the applications that have been made to our hearts, and we pray that those by your spirit would forever remain. God, there are some who are hearing this message today who are in the midst of very difficult circumstances, whether it's a health challenge, it's a relationship conflict, whether it's just a, a confusing scenario that's in front of them, whether they feel misunderstood or whether they're just confused at so many levels. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would help them to count it all joy today that those trials have come upon them and would you remind them over and over that you're gonna be with them through every valley and every difficulty. You're gonna provide grace in order for them to be able to make it. Lord, we thank you that your promise is not that life's gonna be easy, 
but that you're always gonna be with us. We're thankful that your promise is not that life is not gonna be hard, but you've promised us that that hard is not bad because you're in it. And Lord, if we look back on our lives, we can see the ways that over and over you have used difficult circumstances to shape us, to refine us, to make us into what you want us to be. And so, Lord, we want to say even right now for those who are in the midst of a season, God, we believe that you're going to help us. But, Lord, help our unbelief because we doubt quickly. Lord, for all the ways in which our actions need to fit with the book of James and how we talk and what makes us mad and how prone we are to not listen, Lord, for the ways in which we can so easily create a wedge between people, between brothers and sisters in Christ, would you grant us the ability to not be those kind of people? And Lord, to the extent to which we have in the last week, we repent right now and we confess our sins and ask you to help us to walk differently. God, there's a finish line coming someday and we pray that we, like Jesus, would live with the joy that is set before us and we would go after that prize trusting in the one who's going to help us to make it to that finish line and help us to know how to help one another in a long and rugged journey. God, some of my brothers and sisters are tired today. Some have raw edges on their emotions. Lord, some are languishing, just this low-grade irritation that is just settled in. Would you give them grace today to follow you faithfully one more week? God, thank you for meeting us through this book. Our lives have been changed. We've been helped. We love the scriptures, but we love even more how they've helped us to know how to follow you well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.